Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to the fourth episode of Lab Talk with Laura. Uh, today I'm joined by Carolyn Gorse, who's a third year graduate student in the Environmental Conservation Department at UMass, working on her master's degree. She graduated from UMass in 2015 with her bachelor's degree and is originally from central Massachusetts. Her research focuses on freshwater wetlands and how to assess wetland health using the community of plants growing there as indicators of conditions. Thank you for joining us, Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> we are also joined by Elspeth Walker, who is a professor in the biology department at UMass. She got her PhD from the Rockefeller University in New York City. Her main area of research focuses on understanding the fundamental mechanisms underlying iron homeostasis in plants, which can set the foundation for increasing available iron in food crops. She has a paper coming out later this year on the topic in the journal of <laughs> Frontiers of Plant Science. Thank you so much for joining us, Elspeth. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. And joined, joined by our co-host today, hey. uh, Sean Calhoun, who used to be a local comic. Now mm -hmm. he's a Brooklyn comic. Yeah. And uh, you sophisticated. can... Sophisticated. Sophisticated. Mm. <laughs> Always sophisticated, now just in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, and uh, you can follow Sean on Twitter at Archer Calhoun. Yeah, that's okay. right. Thank you for joining us, Sean. Sure. I'm so excited to be here. Okay. Um, so uh, we're going to start off with Carolyn. Um, first, could you just maybe tell us about your research? Absolutely. Um, so I just started my graduate studies in 2015, right after I graduated from my undergraduate degree here. Um, I was really interested in wetlands all through my undergraduate career, and this opportunity came up to uh, study how wetlands, how we can assess a wetland for its health and its condition by looking at the plant community that grows in the wetlands. So my research specifically focuses on one method of wetland assessment, that uses the plants to um, determine what, what the condition of the wetland is. It's called Floristic Quality Assessment, and it's abbreviated FQA. And I guess for the duration of this interview, I'll be referring to it as FQA for Floristic Quality Assessment. Um, basically, it's very cheap and very easy to go into a wetland or to pay a professional botanist to go into a wetland and take a survey of the plant community that's growing there. and uh, take that information back and do some calculations based on the species of plants that are growing there to determine an overall score for the wetland. And it's based on uh, kind of a gradient of stressors. If a wetland is super stressed due to human activity surrounding it, say it's next to a highway, it shouldn't be doing very well. We would assume that that wetland would get a very low score based on the plants that are growing there. And a more pristine wetland that's, say, in the middle of a forest, somewhere far away from human disturbances would get a very high score for being pristine and containing lots of plants that only grow in pristine conditions and can't really tolerate uh, pollution or, or degradation. So, um, so a score is given to that wetland. And um, you know, the, way, the way of calculating FQA based on these plant scores can be um, rather subjective because the different scores given to plant species is based on professional botanists, um, professional judgment, 
and it's a bunch of people getting together in a room and saying, well, we think this plant should have this score because it grows in these types of wetlands. Um, we, so we're wondering whether or not this is the most accurate way of assessing a wetland and its condition. And it's particularly, and that is a particularly important question now because the EPA is all about floristic quality assessment. They're like, oh man, this is cheap. This is easy. We want everybody to use it. And it was originally developed in the Midwest for the assessment of prairies. And not only is it cheap and easy, but it's also purported to be able to be used in all ecosystems, not just wetlands. So it can be used in forests and prairies and uh, coastal wetlands. Um, which is another reason, you know, it, that seems almost too good to be true. So mm. my research is focusing on understanding this method and how well it works in New England and specifically in New England forested wetlands. Mm. So it's floristic is just like flora, meaning yeah, plants? Yeah, based on the flora of the okay. community of flora. At first when you said it, I thought it was going to have to do with like fluorescence, like yeah. <laughs> some kind of light. <laughs> I wish that this would be interesting. This is just my ignorance <laughs> in biology. And I'm getting the sense that you're a bit of an FQA skeptic, like you're, you're, you're a little concerned that maybe this isn't the best, uh, the best metric that, uh, to be used. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I want to be as optimistic as everybody else, but mm -hmm. I think this is more of a case of just kind of proceeding with caution and mm -hmm. making sure that, you know, because everybody's so excited about it, we just want to make sure that it is as good as it says it is yeah. and that, you know, we want to give state managers um, and wetland assessors the right tools mm -hmm. to be using when they assess their wetlands to give yeah. us the best Because it sounds like you're, happening. sounds like there's, you've got some kind of, uh, assumptions that you're making at the beginning it's like yes. you're saying okay I'm going to a place that I think is kind of a crummy wetland anyways and so if I mm. find such and such levels of certain kinds of plants in this what I'm deeming to be a crummy wetland then I'm gonna say okay this is crummy wetland levels <laughs> and then if I go to one that I'm like picking out of a hat or not picking out of a hat but assuming is like a super great wetland yeah okay well, and that's that's kind of an issue when it comes, it becomes circular almost if you're mm -hmm. just looking at the plants, like you're saying, oh, we think this should be a mm -hmm. poorly functioning wetland. We think that this should be a wetland that is poor quality based on these characteristics, mm -hmm. but then how to quantify and measure those characteristics yeah, who knows? to Maybe freeway confirm. runoff is really good for wetlands. Like. <laughs> no, probably not, but that's where you know, the science comes in. <laughs> so what, what are you, so it's a scale they use to assess. Is it like yeah. one to 10 or is it one to a hundred? It is, it's, it's one to 10 scale and um, based on, yeah, based on human disturbance. Mm -hmm. So a really low score will denote a very highly degraded site and a very high score will denote a very pristine site. Okay. okay. So, they, but they don't just go to it and they're like, "This is a really hot plant." Ten, like. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually that is predetermined. So they'll go in and and a plant like oh, oh something very rare that you'd find in a wetland. Um, a, I think cardinal flower. Cardinal flowers are um, you know, actually they grow in streams. I can't think of a good example <laughs> of a very high scoring plant, but mm. invasive species are given scores of zero. Non-native mm. species always are given scores of zero. And a plant like a uh, cattail, you'll find in ditches along the highway, that has a very low score as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, poison ivy? A poison ivy, yeah. Gets yeah, a bad score, Gets right? a bad score because you find it everywhere. But then you come into the other problem of like a red maple. Red maples grow everywhere but they grow in degraded wetlands just as often as okay. they do in mm -hmm. lovely wetlands. So what kind of a score? I feel bad for cattails now. Yeah. <laughs> I love cattails. Yeah, I like cattails are wonderful. Yeah. I'm impressed by cattails, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I they guess. look like corny dogs. <laughs> they do. 
And they're yeah. edible. I think a lot of the bits of the uh, cattail are edible as well. Get out of town. I'm going to go eat some cattails. Yeah, yeah, don't eat the fuzzy part. I did that when I was a kid because I heard this. It's the roots that you I was going to go just right for the fuzzy part, definitely. Okay. Can I make That's a shout out about, since we're talking about edible plants really mm -hmm. quickly? Yeah. There's a local expert, Russ Cohen, who has written a book about edible plants in New England and mm. it's excellent and he knows so much. Um, I used to have a radio show and he's been on my radio show before, nice. but he's an expert and he's got some recipes for cattail roots and stuff. Oh, okay. Um, so you look at wetlands in New England specifically? Yeah, so we have all of this data that we're using for my research on. We have 370 different wetland sites that have been measured since 2008 uh, for the development of uh, another ecosystem tool that's called uh, the Conservation Assessment and Prioritization System. So, uh, you know, for the past several years, they've been going into wetlands and collecting all this plant data. And I have the opportunity to use that plant data from those Massachusetts wetlands to, uh, to compare the scores that we get from FQA to a gradient of stress. Okay. Nice. Yes. Do you do any field work yourself in New England? Or? I was lucky enough to get to do some field work, but we hire a team of professional botanists to go out and actually do the plant surveys. Oh, and they're wonderful people. So, um, you know, during the summers when, I was, when I've been working on my thesis and, and calculations and everything, uh, occasionally I'll get kind of bored of being in the lab and staring at a computer all day. And I'll be like, hey, botanists, can I come out into the field with you guys? And they'll say, yeah, sure. <laughs> we'll all go into a swamp together to look at the plants, and it's wonderful. Are so they hard to, to keep up with because they're like professionals and they do it every day? <laughs> they're professionals, but they're very approachable people. Yeah. So it, and, and we also hired. Like crocodile Dundee types. Uh, <laughs> or just uh, their yeah, knives are always bigger and, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah. there's so much to learn from, from them. And we, we also had some interns some undergraduate interns these past few summers, and uh, so they've been very patient in teaching, you know, the undergrads about what's happening in the wetlands and about the plants, so so they're fun to follow around. I can't tell you how excited I am that you're using the term professional botanist over and over again. Oh, yeah? <laughs> you know, I've, I'm a professor at the biology department, and, and so we have a plant requirement in the biology department. People have to take a plant course. And yeah. Let me just say that it's, it's not super popular. Um, and so I mm -hmm. love this concept of the professional botanist. We mm -hmm. can train you to be a professional botanist. And, you know, after following them through the wetlands, I kind of am thinking that that might be a, <laughs> a career that I would really enjoy having. Mm. But it's also, I think it's one that you have to kind of uh, constantly be looking for work because you're looking, you're working mm -hmm. for small projects here and there, mm -hmm. and mostly during the summers. And yeah, that's right. It's tough out there for a professional botanist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how how do you assemble a team of professional botanists? Do you put out like a Craigslist ad? Or <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how we got this team together, but they've been working. Uh, Just my arrange advisor. some sticks in a certain configuration and they and show they'll up. find you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so if you, I don't know exactly how this team was assembled, but my advisor, Scott Jackson, in the Environmental Conservation Department, um, he's been working with them for years, and one of them is a teacher in her spare time, uh, and one of them is a full-time naturalist, and one of them works for the, uh, the herbarium collection at UMass. So mm -hmm. there are people from all walks of life that also are professional botanists that do this during the summers. Yeah. Right. So do you use the herbarium? at all in terms of the history. So herbaria are these collections of plants from the environment that get saved over time. So you can historically go back and see in this wetland, you know, a hundred years ago there were these and now there are these. Does mm -hmm. that come into this floristic assessment? Unfortunately, no, but that would be f like really fascinating yeah. to look at. 
and I think the herbarium collection at UMass is quite extensive. Oh, and absolutely. It's, it's amazing to look back and, and look at these preserved plants and <laughs> just yeah. to have the, the physical, like it's, it's actually the plant that right. existed. Are these but like in the herbarium, is it uh, like dried plants? That yes. kind of thing? Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Pressed usually, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Is this something that's uh, publicly accessible? Yeah, or? yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. And it's used by a lot of different people for research. People write in from all over the world and need specimens in the herbarium. An herbarium will send out the specimens for people to see, and then they have to send them back. Oh, okay. So. I know sometimes um, natu uh, illustrators, natural illustrators, um, like botanical illustrators will use herbariums as yeah, references. They'll mm. go in and they'll say, oh, I want to draw this plant. What does it actually look mm. like if they don't have access to it? That's what I, I'm always so interested in, uh, like old uh, drawings, you know, back, back before photographs and stuff, when botanists and naturalists like really needed to be good artists too. Like that's, that's so interesting to me that, that <laughs> you could spend all this time studying you know natural philosophy but then you also have to make sure that your art game is like really tip-top or else nobody's gonna publish so young <laughs> <laughs> this is something that's really fascinating to me too that I, in a way you know we think of art and science as mm -hmm. completely separate but science is all about communicating things to people so art is kind of central in a lot of science communication especially biology mm -hmm. but other fields too yeah um well, Elspeth, I'm getting the sense that your maybe your watercolor game is pretty tip top, and you've been. Oh no! Oh no! It's the opposite. Okay. So when I was an undergraduate, I really wanted to take this course called developmental biology. I was quite interested in this, but part of the course was that you literally had to make drawings mm -hmm. that I knew that I would be that would be a fail mm -hmm. uh, for me, and so I actually never took that course. Oh wow! <laughs> Those were the days. Now you could just take pictures. I could take that course now. I know the um, the environmental conservation department is actively trying to make that connection between artists and scientists and there is a call right now for all artists creators musicians and poets even to like coordinate with a scientist in our department or in other departments as well uh, may i read you a psa from, sure, for yeah. that event because it's coming up soon so are you interested in working with a graduate student scientist or on a collaborative art piece? We're looking for artistic collaborators to create products for a, for a student union art gallery show in April that communicates scientific concepts through art. And the final work can be interpretive in your stylistic choice. All media welcome. And if you're interested, please contact tlsartlifescience at gmail.com with your name, your role on campus, a brief statement of why you're interested in the project, and any questions by Friday, February 16th. I think that's next Friday, right? Yeah. Um, you can check out more information about this on thatslifesci.com. Oh, that sounds okay. super rad. Yeah. Nice, that's really cool. Um, yeah, this came up recently in my department too, so I'm in the geology department, and until, I don't know exactly what the date was, but there used to be a person in the department who was the draft person for everybody, you know, and so when people had a figure they wanted to make, they would they would make notes about what they wanted in the figure and then they would give it to her and that was her job was just to make people's figures. And now we have kind of a situation where scientists are expected to make their own figures, which may right. which may be a, a step back in some ways, mm -hmm. depending on your, you know, yeah, your artistic abilities could really affect I your ability to communicate. Is. Yeah, when, when, when I get a student in the lab who has what I think of as a good design sense, which I personally mm -hmm. don't have, although I've tried very hard to develop it over many years, um, I want them, you know, I want them to make all of our figures, actually, because it's more common in my experience 
for people to be like me who go into the sciences without a really great design sense and then we struggle to communicate um, in the most effective way which really is by presenting figures and art mm -hmm. in a sense mm -hmm. so. yeah mm -hmm. that's a this is kind of a tangent but uh, I was recently looking at W.E.B. Du Bois's figures of his drawings about early African-American life and they're just he uses some incredible yeah. different design in his figures too um, so Carolyn how did you end up in this field of research? Well, I think I'm one of the lucky few who, you know, ever since, you know, being quite little, they're like, people are always telling you, oh, you got to know what you want to be when you grow up. And you have to find your passion in life and follow that through to the end and, you know, go to college and study something that you really want to, mm -hmm. to you know, end up doing. Uh, I'm one of the lucky few people that that actually worked for. <laughs> I've been, I've been loving wetlands since I was younger than I can remember. Uh, I have like distinct memories of being like, what, 10 and reaching my hand into a wet, like into the mud in a wetland and feeling something moving and pulling it up and it being a baby snapping turtle. Oh, oh man. Like, I, I've, I've loved this environment and this ecosystem for as long as I can remember and- I feel like you really dodged a bullet there. <laughs> yes, it was quite small. It was only about this, it was like the size of my palm. It was a baby snapping turtle. Um, but yeah, and when I was an undergrad, there was lots of wetland courses, wetland ecology courses that were available to me here at UMass, and I took them all. And then I was also very lucky timing-wise to know the right people. And when I graduated from undergrad, I knew the people with the funding who had projects that had to do with wetland science and ecology. And here I am today, still studying wetlands. And my goal is to become a professional wetland scientist someday and to pursue that certification after I graduate. I feel like that's definitely a prerequisite for being a wetland scientist. You should put it on like the entrance exam uh, to say, you know, have a question that says, if you find a muddy hole, what do you do? <laughs> if the answer is immediately stick your hand right in there. <laughs> You're going to be a good wetland I know. Scientist. I was yep. cringing during that story. I, that's, a, that's terrifying to me, the idea of being like, I'm just going to stick my hand into this mysterious Oh, something's moving? Substance. Grab it. You know, I think that's, you know, that's, that is an essential thing for biology, too. Like You have to be curious. Mm -hmm. You have to be interested in what's going on and just want to jump right into it. For sure. I just want to point out one thing about what you said. You already are a professional wetland biologist. You you realize that, right? <laughs> I know. Sometimes I tell myself that I'm not there yet, and you know. Mm -hmm. Are you getting paid there. to do it? I am getting paid to do this. There you go. Pro. Pretty, right. <laughs> for comedy, it's definitely everyone. There's no accreditation system for being a comic. You just like do it one time, and then you say, "I'm a comic." But <laughs> definitely getting actually getting paid to do it. Uh, that's. I mean, that's almost impossible. That's when you're the pro. And that's when you de definitely call yourself a pro. Mm -hmm. Aw, thanks, guys. <laughs> sure. Thumbs up from us, at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you have a favorite wetland in the area? A favorite wetland? Well, <clears throat> in this very local area, there's, um, you know, the the Lawrence Swamp is right along the rail trail, the Norwatuck mm -hmm. Rail Trail. Mm -hmm. So if you're on there with a bike or you're walking, um, Really, you can just look to either side and there's lots of wetlands mm -hmm. around there and they're quite lovely wetlands. I was there with a friend um, who actually has a radio show here too, Daisy Mathias, and uh, we were walking along and I saw a wood duck in the wetland and it was so exciting because it was my first wood duck sighting and they're beautiful birds. The males have all these uh, colors and, and brightness and uh, they're quite shy too. So and you can see a lot of cool wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, they're gorgeous. I saw a great big blue iridescent water snake. Uh, uh, over there one time, yeah, it was like two feet long. That's awesome. Oh. Yeah. 
So the, the, that's called the Lawrence Swamp along yeah, the, the Lawrence. Trail in Hadley, or I think it's in I think it's technically in Amherst. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's technically in Amherst. Yeah. I think I've seen that a lot. I never knew it even had a name. <laughs> you see a lot of um, frogs crossing on that trail too. Yes, and, and in the springtime, on the first rainy night in spring, first rainy night that's over forty degrees Fahrenheit, there's a big salamander migration that happens oh. at a few places in Amherst. One along Henry Street. Um, and you can kind of go there and, you know, volunteer with the Hitchcock Center and other organizations to kind of help the salamanders and frogs cross the street on this one night where they all migrate. Um, and they're migrating to vernal pools, which are also a type of wetland um, that only show up in the springtime. And these salamanders and frogs use the pools as mating grounds where they can keep their eggs safe and because there's no fish because they're very ephemeral ponds. And uh, it's, it's a great way for the community to get involved in the wetlands in the area. Are these salamanders the kind that have the great big uh, plumes of, uh, of uh, no, of the, like, they look like lions? <laughs> no, we'll, we'll let the expert well, let that, but I don't okay. think so. No, I think, I think you're thinking of um, axolotls. Oh, okay. Yeah, but these are, no, these are black salamanders with big yellow spots mm -hmm. on them. So they're, they're still quite beautiful yeah. and interesting to look Sounds at, um, but they're, yeah, they're, they're called yellow spotted salamanders. Cool. Yeah. We'll so they go to the vernal pools that form in the spring? Yeah, so a vernal pool is um, usually a depression in the landscape where uh, for a few months during the wet season in the spring, it fills up with water, and it usually doesn't last through the summer. It has to be, you, for it to count as a vernal pool, I believe it has to be filled for two weeks, or it has to be wet for two weeks out of the growing season. I'm going to have to check my uh, check my information on that. But yes, it's, it's, a, it's in a very ephemeral pool of water that only exists for a short period of time, just enough for these salamanders and frogs to lay their eggs in, and uh, these little fairy shrimp. Oh, I was just going to raise them. Little fairy shrimp live they're in these so pools, cool. and they're, they'll just be like a depression in the forest, and in the springtime when you hear the like the peep, 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 peep in the woods, that's usually like frog, spring peepers mm -hmm. sitting in a vernal pool. Oh. What's so special about these fairy shrimp? You're Super excited about <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, really they're crazy. shrimp. Oh. They're shrimp and they live in a puddle. Sorry to right. call it no, a puddle. Yeah. I mean, basically, that's a, it's a puddle. That's, that's what we're point. sort of talking about. Uh -huh. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever seen these, but it's probably because I don't get up close and personal in the vernal <laughs> pools. Is it bad to get up close and personal in a vernal pool? Is that disturbing well, it? Or if I'm curious about these shrimp? I think, I think if you're curious, it's okay to get up and personal in, okay. in a vernal pool. Just watch where you're stepping, especially in the springtime, because that's when all the critters are moving around. Mm. It's amazing to me that you can specify to like that you can say like so specifically Henry Street is where these salamanders cross. That's where all, all the people kind of gather every spring. Um, yeah, it's on Henry Street. Well, do we Amherst. need to put a sign up? You know, should there we like be contacting our? Oh, there is. Okay, I was about yeah, to say, do we need to contact oh. our local legislators and like get a sign that says you know salamander crossing or Done. something? Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, people cool. are people are really into it and. On those rainy, warm nights in the, in the springtime, in April and sometimes late March, people will be there and they'll be standing on the road wearing uh, reflective gear and putting up signs and kind of making sure traffic goes slowly. I, yeah, it's just kind of incredible to think that the salamanders know which street to take every year. And... How do they know? Well, I think it's specifically that street because uh, there's an upland forest on one side mm -hmm. and the gradient of the land kind of slopes down and Henry Street crosses that gradient, and on the other side of the street, where it's a little bit lower, there's a pond. Yeah. And that's where they all go. That, yeah. 
cool. accesses vernal pool in the springtime. It kind of makes me think about how um, even like a small amount of construction could have a really devastating impact on some ecosystems if it's in the right spot, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Certain areas are really important. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Is there anything else about um, your life as a scientist that you'd like to talk about, Carolyn? Well, I feel like uh, for people for people our age, I'm, I'm 25, um, people, people in their early 20s, maybe science isn't as accessible as it could be. And I find it a true privilege to be doing science and to be working in this field. Um, but I'd also say to encourage people, undergraduates, especially at UMass, to try to get involved with uh, labs that are doing science work. There's, there's so many different people who are doing research at UMass, and the easiest way to get involved is to start talking to people and to start <laughs> making those connections. And, you know, chances are that eventually you'll run into someone who has an opportunity for you. And, uh, and, and there's just, there's really are so many opportunities at UMass. And, but, but personally, I didn't get involved in undergraduate research at all. And I'm still doing research as a grad student. So if you're interested in it, just keep pursuing it and it, you know, it'll happen eventually. Yeah. I think uh, it's interesting that you talked about how you, you know, growing up, you like to be outside and you stick your hands in the mud and mm -hmm. stuff like that. I still do and, that. And um, we've had other guests who are, I think, from the same department, your environmental conservation, right? Yeah. Um, who talked about how when they were little, they hated going outside and they would, <laughs> but they enjoyed watching like nature documentaries. Did you talk to Evan? Yeah, okay. Evan and Laura too. Um, <laughs> and that's an inter it's just interesting to me that there are so many different routes and that to, to becoming a scientist that, you know, I think it's, lovely to like grow up and know that you want to do that from the start but it's yeah. really interesting to hear that people who hated the outdoors ended up studying it and loving it too it's really nice mm -hmm. yeah and people who love outdoors also end up like me I would rather die than have to go out and do field work <laughs> <laughs> even though when I was a kid I you know I, I mm. would uh, I spent all my time out looking at nature as I okay so muddy hole what would you do Oh, I would grab the... Are you sure? Oh, well, see. <laughs> oh, Even okay. though you don't like the outdoors, you Same still instincts. have that. Mm -hmm. still yeah, have so instincts. I was really interested in primates, actually. I was really interested in Jane Goodall mm -hmm. and, and um, oh, I'm blanking her name, the one who works on the... Diane Fossey, who did the gorillas and everything. Mm -hmm. And I love those books. And then I thought more about what their lives actually were like. <laughs> and I realized, never, ever, ever, <laughs> I want showers. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. Our guests today are Carolyn Gorse from the Environmental Conservation Department at UMass Amherst, Dr. Elspeth Walker from the Biology Department, and joining me as co-host today is comedian Sean Calhoun. Jumping back into it. We're going to move on and talk to Elspeth Walker, um, who's a professor in the Biology Department at UMass. So... Elspeth, could you just maybe tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, so I, um, I'm always torn a little bit when people ask me this because we, uh, I do very basic fundamental research without, um, without a societal impact goal, but there's a lot of, it's hard to make people interested in that. Mm -hmm. So it's very typical for us to start any description like this by saying, so, in the world, there's a huge problem actually with iron deficiency anemia, and this is because more than two, well, probably not more, more than a billion people, it's approximately 1.6 billion, people don't get enough iron in their diets, 
And so they suffer from iron deficiency anemia, and this has really big repercussions for um, childhood development, um, uh, development of intellectual capacity, women of childbearing age. This is very, makes pregnancies very difficult, can lead to death in those cases. And so because of this worldwide problem of this hidden hunger, so to speak, um, there's a lot of interest in trying to figure out how we could make it so that the plants that people eat, and typically these pe the people who are having this as a really big problem are eating essentially plant-based diets, mm. how you could get more iron into those plants, right? So that's sort of this big picture, real world view of it. But the problem is we don't know <laughs> how to actually do it. So it's one thing to say we want to do it, but it's a different thing to say, you know, and this is how we'll manage that. Um, and so what my research is, is I am just curious about the way things work, and particularly at the molecular level. And so you can all close your eyes and go to sleep probably now. <laughs> um, and so um, I want to understand the ways that plants get the iron out of the soil, which is where the iron typically comes from, mm. and move it around in their bodies, and end up putting it into the right place. Sometimes that place is something that we eat, right? Mm -hmm. So a grain of a of a cereal like wheat or corn or something like that, right? Right, it's no good if it goes into the stalk. Yeah, it doesn't matter okay. if it, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. If it's in the leaves and we eat the seeds, that's not helpful. And that, actually, it's interesting that you say that because that's one of the big problems. Plants are super careful about exactly how much iron they put into different places. Mm -hmm. And it turns out to be really hard to get plants to m move excess iron. And so one of the ways that we might be able to do it is if we could trick the plant into um, changing the way that it's regulating that so that instead of regulating at level you know, one, we could make it regulate at level 1.5 and then we'd get one and a half times more iron and that would be actually quite mm -hmm. um, significant. So my lab is particularly interested in the communication that the plant is doing internally where the leaves basically are telling the roots, okay, now take some up, okay, stop. Okay, now take up more, stop. And so it's that do it stop mechanism, that homeostatic mechanism as we'd call it, that we're really, really interested in finding out about. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I'm curious, though, like when you talk about iron, immediately I'm like, iron's heavy. Does that have any, like, does the heaviness of iron have anything to do with why it's not ending up in the parts of the plant that we eat? It's, yeah, so that's a great question. So it's probably um, not so much the heaviness, but I do think it's something we can really relate to with iron, which is if you've ever had a car with a rust spot, a bike mm -hmm. with a rust spot, a sink that gets rust in it, and you've tried to scrub the rust off, you know mm -hmm. how really, really hard that is to do. And plants, it, iron that's in the soil, even though you can't usually see it, you can't tell that it's rusty. Mm -hmm. It's rusty. Mm. Um, and plants have that exact same problem. They have to work really hard, actually, and secrete a lot of molecules into the soil to free up that rust and get the iron into a state where they can take it up. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of the problem. But then the other piece of the problem is once you do make the iron accessible and soluble, now the iron is really, really reactive. And so mm. iron will participate in these chemical reactions that can be extremely damaging. And that's probably the reason that plants are so careful about putting exactly the right amount they don't into want different this, places. They don't want this like iron free radicals or whatever you call them, right? that's running, exactly running amok in their... Uh, yes, okay. yeah, that's exactly you. right, exactly right. And humans, by the way, and animals also do the exact same thing. So we don't take up more iron than mm -hmm. we need either. And we control that at the level of the gut. And so we just won't take it up when we don't need it. Oh, okay. Now, when you, for instance, I'm thinking about, you know, you get enough iron in your diet, 
used to be, well, you'd go and grab your box of total cereal and, you know, have a big, nice bowl of that. And that would be, you know, 100% of your iron for the day. Yeah. But I've also, is, is that the same, is, is that sort of enrichment process a good way to get iron or? Yeah, so that enrichment process is a great way to get iron. And okay. the, this is why in the developed world, um, we have a very little problem with serious iron deficiency anemia. Mm -hmm. um, but in the, in the developing world where people are not eating processed foods, where their subsistence growing, mm -hmm. they don't have that fortification. And that actually is one of the sort of key reasons why this is such a big problem in places like that. Oh. That plus the non-consumption of meat. So it turns out that meat by far, by far, best source of iron for you. Even tiny amounts of meat make the iron that you get from plant sources much more accessible in your mm. gut. And so um, for c people who are not able to eat meat at all, iron deficiency becomes a much worse problem. Huh. Do you know um, like what process controls, like why eating a little bit of meat makes the iron more available? No. No? <laughs> really? It's a mystery? Yeah. It's a mystery. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's a mystery. If only someone was like studying this. You oh, know? they are. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to me. Like, I feel like sometimes you'll assume science knows things, but it doesn't. Like, I don't know if this is a good exactly. thing to Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I think that's one of the most fascinating things about science is that we, there's so much stuff that we don't, don't know, know, and it's, it's possible to get really curious about all kinds of different things. And, and for every question that you answer, there's like 10 more that are raised afterwards. Exactly. Can I ask, can we get like down to brass tacks? What are some of the, uh, I mean, uh, what, are, what are some of the methods that you're uh, exploring to, to actually get the, the iron? Are we talking about like gen genetic modification? Or are we talking about? So <laughs> let me be really, really clear. My group mm -hmm. studies the process. So okay. my group is actually not trying to mm -hmm. make it so that there's more iron in mm -hmm. plants, but we do think about that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, there are a couple of ways. One way that you could do it would be by breeding. And because there's so much anti-GMO sentiment, particularly in Europe, but also in this country, um, there have, uh, there's been a lot of effort. The problem with that, the trouble that people have, is that say you want to increase the amount of iron in rice grains, mm -hmm. and that's probably the most important crop that we could do this in. Mm -hmm. If we look at all of the different rice strains that we know in the entire world and we measure how much iron is in them, all of them have too little iron mm -hmm. to work. Mm -hmm. So now how do you breed that in? There is nothing that you can breed from because there's nothing in the whole species that is high enough mm -hmm. for us to kind of get there. And that's a problem. And so at that point, yes, the solution in my mind would be that we actually engineer. So mm -hmm. we actually figure out what the genes are that we need to change and we go in and make a modification, change those genes so that the uptake into grains would be uh, enhanced. Yeah. Makes sense. So is that bias people have against genetic modified foods do you want to talk about that maybe like you're I mean we can uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what to what to say about it so it's interesting it's always been interesting to me and I've actually I, I don't know this is probably too complicated a story to relate but I I, I used in the past I have been in forums where I've tried to talk about this and I've gone sort of as the as the scientist and oftentimes these type of forums there'll be a person from the like organic farming uh, community and a person from something else and a person from industry and me right and so I had this experience once where I went to the Boston Science Museum and we and I spent the evening with their um, board of directors I guess actually it was and 
at the beginning of the evening, they had to, they basically took a vote and said, you know, how many of them, and more than half of them thought the GMOs were fine in their children's school lunch. But at the end of the evening, it was like 30%. And so actually, I, you know, my impression from the evening was that I had done a terrible job, right? Because mm. I had actually made people, or maybe not me, there were three other people there, but, but people were less convinced. And so as a scientist, I feel like I really struggle to make it understandable and to get away from the, um, I don't know, maybe it's because I don't understand well enough what people's fears and concerns are. To me, it's clear that there isn't a scientific basis for some of the big concerns, mm. um, but it's hard for me to make it clear why that's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's it's a really a, hard thing when something's already politicized, right, yes. to come in and talk about it in an unbiased way or come in and, I don't know, it's, this is something I've been thinking about a lot for yeah. sure. And I think one thing that's hard for me is the lumping in of all genetically modified foods Me as too. one thing because I can yes. imagine I understand people's fears about chain you know messing with nature Jurassic Park style right uh, like yeah. not that you've got Jurassic Park in your lunchbox but um <laughs> but uh I I understand the fears but I also understand the benefits so like when yeah. you talk about changing plants so they can have more iron like what could be wrong with that a little bit right well I mean you know because I mean I think that I actually don't know what could be wrong with that, but right. I mean, I could make up stories, I suppose, if I thought about it long enough. But I think one of the things that, that sometimes gets lost in, in something that's highly politicized, as you aptly described it, is that um, I would never in a million years say that we should just genetically modify willy-nilly without mm -hmm. consideration to the environmental effects and, the, and, and any various other effects that, mm -hmm. that might be downstream. I absolutely think that this should be something that's carefully considered, carefully regulated, and it should not be the wild, wild west. Mm -hmm. um, and that also gets lost, that you can have a, a scientist, like you know, a plant biologist, plant molecular biologist like me, really believes that GMOs could solve a lot of our problems with world hunger um, if it was not so difficult and so culturally unacceptable. But at the same time, I would never advocate that, you know, just anything goes, right? Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a balance. And when we have this highly polarized political discussion, it's very hard to remember that people want the balance. It's not that we're saying all GMOs, it's that we're saying some GMOs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so some of the things that come up there are transparency, right? So if you don't understand like what's being genetically modified, that might cause fear. And then sure. also there's a limit to how much information any given person wants about the food they're buying, right? right <laughs> like, right, you, right. on the one hand, you might be like, "Well, I'm scared of GMOs where they put mouse brains in grapes." For some reason, I don't know that, that that's not real. I just said why that. would you be scared of that? <laughs> I, I I get that. I don't know personally. I would be hesitant to. I don't know. I am kind of like disclaimer: there are no mouse brain grapes. <laughs> yeah, let's be that clear. We know I don't of. know that it, it, they could exist. <laughs> no, right? no, 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 no. I, I assure she you, checked. this is not a thing. I'm sorry. I said I mean, that. It's pair, very scientific. The, the grapes could pair better with cheese. If yeah, they had there you go. Mouse brains. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grapes okay. Sure. Why not? I'm coming around to this mouse brain grape. <laughs> I don't know why that's what jumped into my head. So I don't want to be a complete pedant about it, but you know, interestingly, this idea of mouse brain, mm -hmm. what you would really do in genetic engineering though, is you might take a single gene from a mouse that normally would make a protein in the brain, mm -hmm. and you would put that gene into the plant, and then that plant would express a protein that used to be expressed in plant brain. 
uh, excuse me, in Mouse Brain. And I think that's quite different. You know, it's mm. way less Frankenstein. And so yes. if we remember what the actual, you know, nitty gritty of the mechanism is, then I think also it becomes somewhat less scary. But again, it's much more common to talk about mouse brains in grapes, you know, but really so what you'd be talking to talk about, about is that. one protein from a mouse that yeah. would be in a grape. That's what you would really do. Well, a, a, that kind of goes to maybe a little bit of a lack of understanding in the public about like what genetics and what DNA is actually doing and what it's capable of as far as you say, you know, like it's, you know, it's not telling, it do, it's, it's, there's not a gene that says like brain, make a brain. It's, it's like expressing, uh, yeah, DNA, it's a, the DNA is expressing, you know, how to create an amino acid and how to create right. proteins and stuff. Yeah, exactly, yeah, so it's like, exactly, exactly. It's, 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 it's much more of a pinpoint thing, I guess. Yeah, the other thing that I find really you know, really interesting with respect to this pinpoint idea mm -hmm. is that I think people also don't really realize how we do plant breeding if we don't use genetically modified crops. So one of the things that, that is done quite commonly in plant breeding is we make what are called wide crosses. And so say you want to make a better potato. This is actually, this actually is, a, well, let's do the celery one. Say you want to make better celery. So you take celery and you cross, domesticated celery, and you cross it to wild celery, okay? And then you just want something that's more pest resistant so the celery doesn't get so chewed up by insects. And you do that, and that works great, and that's fine because wild celery is super resistant to pests, perfect. Well, it turns out that when this actually got done in this way, first of all, you're introducing, um, on average, in a new genome, which a wild celery would basically be a new genome, 20,000 changes, okay? Mm. As opposed to genetically modifying, which would mean that you would change one or two proteins, okay? Mm. So you change 20,000, potentially. So you have no control whatsoever. But the other thing is, when this was done in celery, when the pickers began to pick this newly developed cultivar that was made in this using this wide cross, they all began to break out in, in gigantic skin rashes, and that's because the thing that was conferring insect resistance actually was a sorolin that, that was, you know, that caused it's these conferring huge... human resistance Yeah, it, as well. it was made the plants resistant to humans and everything else, and the uh, whole thing had to be scrapped, right? Wow. So when we do crosses like this, and we do this with tomatoes, we do it with potatoes, we do it with celery, we do it with a lot of different crops actually. We don't know what we're bringing in and per I personally actually I feel kind of more confident about bringing in one thing that I know what it is rather than you know having at it and bringing in a bazillion things and you know seeing what takes. Right so there's kind of this attitude like well at least that's natural right, right but right, then right. nature produced poison ivy and <laughs> nature <laughs> produces all sorts of things that are actually going to work really want to kill you it turns out. <laughs> yeah I, one thing I didn't know about until recently is that like uh, there's certain plants that if you pick that if you are exposed to them that makes your skin really sensitive to the sun so yes, like turnips or something. This is actually oh what, it's the same one. That is the oh that's thing. the exact yeah, one that it was so it made yep. them so they were actually getting sunburned because of the plant or touching their sun skin. Induced rash sun induced rash. Oh man. Yeah. yeah that's pretty scary. I feel bad for those. I feel bad farmers. for those workers too. Yeah actually. that's really yeah. sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, huh. So can um, can you talk about like what what are you actually doing to find out where the iron is in the plants and stuff like that? So we have a lot of different analytical techniques to actually show us what you know where the iron is in the plant. And one of the things that one of the things that we're super excited about right now is that um, we have figured out a, a way to make it so that when roots are think at least that they're experiencing iron deficiency, they will turn blue. So this is all done in the lab, and so this is definitely genetic engineering. So we engineer in what's called a reporter gene, 
<clears throat> excuse me, that's the gene that will make this blue. And that gene will only turn on if the roots think they're experiencing iron deficiency. So we always thought, and many people have thought this, that the leaves must control whether the roots take up the iron. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to take basically, essentially juice from the leaves of plants that are starving for iron and plants that have enough iron and take those and, and apply those to these roots that'll turn blue if they think they're experiencing iron deficiency. And it turns out that the juice from the iron deficient leaves make the roots turn blue and the juice from the leaves that have had plenty of iron does not make the roots turn blue. And so that's a signal. And so by using this super artificial, extremely reductionist, pointless, actually, I mean, you know, there's no benefit to this system, we now are in a position where we are going to be able to figure out what is the molecule, the chemical, the RNA, the protein, whatever it turns out to be, what is it that the leaf is using <clears throat> I beg your pardon, to uh, signal to the roots that it's time to take up iron. And so that's the thing that we're most excited about. So we're hot on the trail um, of finding out what that molecule is. That's some primo lab talk right there. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you engineered the roots to turn blue. My friend from uh, Penn State University actually okay. made that particular construct, and we realized that it would be useful for this, and so we... We asked her for it, she gave it to us, and then we use it. Now, why blue? Why not uh, orange or yellow or green? <laughs> we would take any color. Any color would be fine. Except maybe green, because sometimes yeah, roots green, turn green, green anyway. Tell, yeah. um, but anyway, it just <laughs> so happens okay. that that's the color that you get in this particular essay. Oh. Yeah. I was going to ask a little bit more about, is, so you're doing, can you give us another example of some of the, some of the lab, the lab uh, experiments and work that you're doing uh, to, you know, to, 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 learn about how the plants uptake the, the um, we Yeah, so some of the work that we, um, that we did in the past, um, we, were the, we were the ones who at first identified the gene <clears throat> in plants, in some plants, in the important plants. <laughs> Not the plants that live in wetlands. So when when people like me say important plants, what we really mean are cereal grains. And so we, you know, you think of cereal as like Cheerios in your bowl, but actually cereals are, you know, wheat, barley. So cereals are your beer, um, corn, rice, stuff like that. Okay, the things that give us most of our calories in the human race. So it turns out that those species of plants don't take up their iron in the in the most ordinary way. They use a special way. They secrete these special molecules into the soil and the molecules go out like little troopers and the little troopers break down the rust that I mm -hmm. talked about that was in the soil um, and then bring the iron back to the surface of the root. And we had been, the, we had been able to discover the transporter, the protein that sits in the membrane of the root cells that pulls that iron with its little molecule attached into the plant cell for the first time. And so we did that actually almost, it wasn't exactly accidental, but we, we did it sort of by accident. I was a postdoc, I was working at Yale University then, and I was working in a genetics lab and I was studying something super esoteric where I would never have been able to actually make this nice pat story that I tried to give you about iron deficiency, <laughs> anything, right? So I was studying this thing called paramutation that you've never heard of and you never will again. and. Um, but at the time, the lab had what's called a mutagenesis study going all the time. And because of this mutagenesis study, every year we would get a big box of corn. Um, this was done in corn. Um, and the head of the lab would say, 
there are mutants in here that you can, you know, I want you to look for what's, what mutants can you see, mm -hmm. and then clone the gene that's responsible for the mutant. And because of a very complicated genetic strategy, making that connection between here's a mutant phenotype, we can see there's a problem that the plant's having, and actually figure out what the gene is was made very simple. Um, in this in this particular strategy, because usually that connection is very difficult actually to make, um, and so I happened to get one where the plant showed these yellow stripes. It was a really obvious phenotype, and it turned out that the yellow stripes were caused because the plant was starving for iron. Mm -hmm. So whatever gene what had been mutated in that plant was a gene that was critical for the plant to be able to pull the iron out of the mm -hmm. ground. So you could tell like what gene you're looking for because this plant doesn't That's have it exactly, okay. and that right there, mm -hmm. that's genetics. Mm -hmm. That's what geneticists do. We trash out a gene mm -hmm. so that we can see what happens when it's gone. And then we can say, ah, that's what that gene did, mm -hmm. right? And so I cloned this gene and it turned out to be this really important transporter that um, is what grasses use to get iron out of the ground. And that's how I began to get interested in this. So it was a little bit serendipitous for, you know, for me, mm -hmm. um, but that's, a, that's an example of the type of work we do. So mm -hmm. I would define myself as a geneticist. And so we constantly are trying to, are trying to destroy a gene in a plant <laughs> and find out what happens um, and then learn something from that. And so all of the research that we do is predicated on that strategy. I love that. So you really just stumbled on this gene, I this did. fact that it, yeah, and then that launched a whole, like, yep. a research career that's for right. you, right? Is that's that right? Yep. And that kind of, that's so cool because it, I don't know, it highlights the importance to me of, like, basic research, right? Me that, too. like, there's so many things that you don't know what you're looking for until you find it. Exactly. And that's exactly. one of the challenges, kind of, you know, you, st you started talking about your research and how it's not motivated by people but it really is yeah it, but it kind of is but well, like yeah. but you know when you started out on that path you like messing with genes yep. you didn't know that that was going to end up Not having these impacts that's, for that's humans right. and, and so often that's the way science goes uh right there's you don't always have like you, we talk about pure research and people are like well you know and there's still no cure for cancer but sometimes like the important cures and you know and discoveries come from come from the other way around just pure research they like, definitely do can there? i tell you a cool story yes, about please. that actually please. the cancer one in particular so it turns out that what do you think when you think about you know what how we think about cancer these days hopefully hopefully this isn't too esoteric um you think about oncogenes right so we have totally. we kind of have the concept that there's a gene there's genes that go awry and that some genes when they go awry they can cause a cancer and those genes are oncogenes and that's a pretty common concept right and that's a phenomenally important onco concept. like oncology yes exactly okay. and so that's a super important concept in 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 um in cancer biology okay so when we were first trying to figure this out we writ large in i don't know how early this was 1940s i would say 40s 50s something like that people started studying this chicken virus called rouse sarcoma virus and rouse sarcoma virus causes cancer in chickens and it is absolutely true that people started studying this because they were interested in cancer but it quickly became obvious that first of all Human cancers are hardly ever caused by viruses. Mm -hmm. So you might have said at that point, why well, study a chicken virus that causes cancer when this is not particularly applicable to humans? Mm -hmm. But fortunately, research funding, climate was a lot better then, and so people kept on looking at this. 
And Rouse sarcoma virus gave us the concept of oncogenes and was used for that and was absolutely fundamental for that. So it served its initial purpose, but it did something else that people don't, always, don't think about very often. Turns out Rouse sarcoma virus is a type of virus called a retrovirus. And you may all know that the HIV AIDS virus is also a retrovirus. Well, it turns out that HIV AIDS is, is a retrovirus, and it's one of the only retroviral diseases that exists in humans that was known. It, and remember, it wasn't really even known until the 1990 about, okay? So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's really recent. So, if we had not worked on Rouse sarcoma viruses and things like that, we would have known nothing about retroviruses. Huh. So, I recently looked into the history of this because it turned out that we had, from the time that the HIV virus was identified to the time that we had the first therapy, which was a um, protonase inhibitor, which we only knew to look at because we understood how retroviruses work, was only about four years. And that seems like a really long time if you have AIDS, and I know this on, unfortunately, a very personal level. Mm -hmm. um, but that's incredibly short um, in the scheme of we have a brand new disease, we have no idea what we're looking at, and now we've developed a therapy for it. If we had not had that type of funding for basic stuff that let us do all this stuff about retroviruses and really understand them well, we would have been, we would have just been devastated by HIV AIDS. It, it would Even have taken 20 so, years yeah. to come out with the first drug wow. for something like that. And so that's a, I find that a really powerful story mm -hmm. for why we need this, why we need basic research so badly. Yeah. Um, okay. I think we're ready to move on to the last part of the show. Um, so we're going to play a game that I created called GTA. Guess, Auto, yeah. guess that acronym. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so the way the game works is, uh, well, so basically, I you know I came up with this idea because we use acronyms in science a lot um, as a, as a way to communicate because we talk about certain subjects over and over and over again and be it becomes more efficient to use acronyms. But it's one way that science can become kind of inaccessible too. Um, and so the way we're going to play the game though is that. We're going to have Sean guess the acronyms first because he's the non-expert. Okay. Um, and then we'll have our experts jump in. So our first acronym is OEB. Uh, so it's got to be something about, uh, it's got to about, be about betting, right? On, like I know off-track betting, OTB. <laughs> so this is probably O on electrical betting, right? It's like online betting? Hmm. Anybody else want to jump in? Well, it is a it is a graduate department at mm. UMass. Oh, am okay. I am I on the right track? Yeah. But I, I oh, I'll guess that is organismic and evolutionary biology. Ding 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 ding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next acronym is CRISPR. C R I S P R. Okay. I know what that is, but I don't have no idea what it, it's. I know it's the um, it's like. Something about uh, mapping DNA, mapping genomes, or something like that. Do you want to just take a guess? You can, you can do a wild <sighs> guess. Uh, college of Radical uh, Islamic Samuel R. Renegades. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Does anybody else know it? I know this is a this is a it's important in biology, but do we we don't even know I what have, it breaks I have no down idea. to? Do, do we? you know anything? So I am so embarrassed because I made my genetics students learn this. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. If any of my many genetic students end up listening to this, remember, I told you I would never put such a thing on an exam because you can always look it up. So I can't remember what all of them stand for. But it's, it's, it's too many. What, it has to do it with so interspersed repeats. That's part of it. Um, and it's a method for it's a method for um, making directed mutations in genes. Uh, so yeah, so I fail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I kind of took a common acronym that we don't yeah. even think about mm -hmm. what it means. So I'll I have it here because I it's created a this great via acronym. internet I mean, search. it's like everybody can remember CRISPR, but CRISPR. It's yeah, it's a it's a good acronym, but it's almost a, devastated by the fact that it's a word in and of itself. Yeah, almost, right. Right? Mm -hmm. right. Same with laser. I'm pretty sure la we were talking about lasers. I'm pretty sure laser is also an it acronym. It is an acronym. Yeah. yeah. But not, I also don't know what that mm -hmm. one stands for. But uh, CRISPR is clustered. Regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. Oh, there you go. Wow. Wow. Well, done. there's no way you would have known that, Sean. I'm sorry. This palindromic. Game, this game, you're Are you you're set up me? for failure in this game. Truthfully, <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole nature of the game. It's just it's a it's a, a practice in humiliating I'm, a comedian. I'm devastated. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, the scientist definitely. <laughs> um, okay, so our next acronym, MCB. Megan, uh, bossed with, I don't, why are you humiliating me like this? This is terrible. I thought you listened to the other episodes. <laughs> did you not know this was going to happen? I did know it was going to happen, <laughs> but I didn't think, it, I didn't think it would just make me feel this bad. But. Oh, I, yeah, maybe I need to come up with a game that doesn't make people feel so bad. <laughs> okay, what is it? It made, give, it made I, Matt feel bad, too, I didn't realize. <laughs> You want this one or I can I have it? I have it. I don't know what it is. Molecular and cellular biology. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, Very good. <laughs> Here's another one I know you've heard of. Okay. But do you know what it stands for? DNA. I, I do know that one. Oh. I think. It's in a dioxide. What is it? Deoxyribonucleic acid? Wow. Is that right? Sean, I only know that because, this is like, the first. This is the first time that a comedian has accurately guessed an acronym. Well, I this only know that because, like, in um, like sixth grade, one of my like nerdier friends walked up to me and he's like, "Do you know what DNA stands for?" And I'm like, "Of course not." And he's like, "It's deoxyribonucleic acid." And I'm like, and, but that burned it in your brain. Huh? Yeah, it did. Yeah, that's that how experience. I remember. You'll never forget. Chris Lichlider saying deoxyribonucleic acid. <laughs> I'm gonna say his full name because I'm still angry at him about it. <laughs> Well, okay. That's uh that's the end of our show. This was so fun. It was super fun. Thank yeah. you so much, uh, Carolyn and Elspeth and Sean for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having <laughs> us. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Cool. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura, hosted by yours truly, Laura Paterusso. Today's co-host was Sean Calhoun, who you can follow on Twitter at Archer Calhoun. Our guests were Carolyn Gores and Dr. Elspeth Walker. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Go ahead and check out our SoundCloud or Facebook page, Lab Talk with Laura, to listen to past episodes or email us at labtalkwithlaura at gmail.com if you're interested in coming on the show to share your research. Please stick around for WMUA News coming right up.